0: So, it's good to see everyone that is here. got a couple things to say first off. The first Sunday night and the second Sunday night of June is this quarter's debate. And the topic will be the day on which the Lord's Supper should be taken. And so that will be the first Sunday and the second Sunday evening in June. And some of you will know that that is a very real debate that is happening uh, in this county. Uh, and in the world, but really in this county. So we'll be talking about that. Secondly, I want to take the time to thank all of you who asked about my gospel meeting a few weeks ago. I really appreciate that. And I want to do something now that may embarrass some people, but I don't really care. Because I just want to thank those by name who actually came and supported that. Because I'm not very good at giving praise. I don't take praise very well, so I don't dish it out very well. But one of the things that we often talk about is we need to say when people are doing good things. Michael came. Juliet came. Bill came. Pat came. Maggie came. Uh, Greg came. Aaliyah came. Jackie came. Chinadu came. Kevin came, Melissa came, was there anybody else that I'm skipping here? But you can see as I rattle off that list, that was a pretty good group of people that came. And I'm really appreciative to each of you who made the effort. And the rest of you, do not be angry at them. Do not look down on them. Because they had to sit through me preaching. <laughs> but nevertheless, Wednesday night we were studying the Psalms. And Eddie brought up an interesting point about the inscriptions of the psalms, the capital letters that are there in the psalms. And he used the word that part of that is the inspiration. I want you to sit back and think for a second. Can you prove to me that the psalms are inspired of God? That it's not just men who sat down and they wrote some songs and we happened to get them all together together. But rather that God used men to write songs that we would sing together as we sang, "Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path," Psalm one nineteen. We do that all of the time. And could you prove to someone that the Psalms really are, in fact, inspired by God? I would imagine most of us could. I'm going to give you an instance of, of two examples. I want you to go to Acts in the fourth chapter. Acts, the fourth chapter, is in reference to Psalm 2. The very, not the very first, but the second psalm that we have. And that particular psalm doesn't tell us who the author is. But guess what? Acts 4 does. Acts 4 tells us who wrote this psalm. And I want you to notice verse 25 of Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are gathered and they are praying for courage and boldness to continue to speak the word, it says, in verse 25, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against His anointed, and against His cries. And the reason I point that out is verse 25. It was written by David, but through your spirit or by your spirit. David didn't come up with Psalm 2 on his own. He was directed by God to write Psalm 2. You would see very similar things in Hebrews, the first chapter. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. You would see Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, you would see references... Too many of the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 2 is another reference. But I want you to notice verse 5, how the introductory statement says, For which of the angels did God ever say? And he quotes Psalm 2, Today you are my son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice what he's saying there. He's giving the credit of Psalm 2, God said this. You would go down to verse 7, also a psalm. But verse 8, I want you to notice the introduction. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This psalm that is quoted in Hebrews 1, that is addressing God, is written by God. That is Psalm 45 about Christ. And, his church. and I want us to go back in Psalm 45, and that's where we are going to spend the majority of our time this morning, is in that 45th Psalm. So if you are using an old school Bible and you have a marker, you should mark that. If you're using a new school Bible, it will be easier for you to get back to Psalm 45, because we're going to go to the New Testament pretty frequently. But this morning, as we look at Psalm 45... A psalm that is, in the New Testament, said to be God speaking. That He uses this author. And we want to begin by looking at the author. Because in this psalm, we're going to see the author speak. We're going to see the king. And we're going to see the bride. All pictured in here. And as we just read from Ephesians, the fifth chapter, the bride of Christ is His church. And we're going to notice a few things that are said here about Christ and His church. Notice what is said about the author. Those little capital letters that are all at the top there, we're going to read those because they are part of the song that I believe are inspired by God. It says to the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. What we learn right up front, before we ever get into what we would call the psalm, is who wrote this thing. And it would be one of the sons of Korah. We talked about that Wednesday night. You can go to the book of First Chronicles and see who these sons were. But they would be descendants from way back when. But they were singers in the days of David and Solomon in the temple. They were the ones that were in charge of that. And they wrote songs. And we find out about this particular song that it is a love song. It's a song about love between a king and his queen and his bride. Now, this is something that is beautiful that he is writing about, something that is wonderful. So, verse 1, we learn that the author, he says, My heart overflows with a pleasant thing, or with a pleasing thing. And I address my verses to the king, and my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He says, Man, my heart is overflowing with a good word. I think some of your translations may even say, uh, indicting or something like that. I had to look that word up. It means gushing. His heart is filled with a good message, a good word. And we see the inspiration given right here, right? He says that he is going to address, he's either writing about his king or to his king. And I'm not sure which one it is. I think both are applicable because he's definitely going to address the king in the next couple of verses. But you have some translations that say it is to. You have some that say it's about. And I'm not sure which one it is. And I'm not particularly sure that it it matters in, in its fullest sense here as we think about it from the Christ and His church. But it's to. Him. Man, I feel so good about this. I just have to say this and notice how he says, my, I'm like a pen. I'm just the pen of a ready scribe. When you think about what scribes their job was, their job was not to come up with the law and the ordinances. Their job was to copy the law and the ordinances. So what the author is saying is, I have been told such a good message that my heart is flowing, and I can't wait to tell you about it. So the author is excited about it. So now he addresses his king through verses two through nine. I'm going to take the first part here, chapter or verse two, as we think about his beauty. Notice verse two. He says, "You are the most handsome of the sons of men." Grace is poured upon your lips. That's a very simple thing, right? But you're more handsome than everyone else. Remember a king that was more handsome than everyone else? They kind of stood head and shoulders above the rest. King Saul, right? And then when you just think of someone like that, you look at someone that you look up to, you admire, they stand out in the crowd. This king stands out in the crowd. But He doesn't really stand out for His looks. He is beautiful. But as we just read, if this is about Christ, Isaiah 53, there was nothing about His appearance, His form, or His comeliness that we should look on Him. It wasn't because He was good-looking. It was because who He was made Him good-looking. And what made Jesus so good-looking was what is mentioned here in verse 2. That grace was poured upon your lips. Remember something that was said of Jesus. I want you to flip over to Luke, the fourth chapter. As Luke begins Jesus' ministry, He's been tempted. The Spirit has driven Him out into the wilderness to be tempted. He comes back into the region of Nazareth. And he is speaking from the psalm, or from the prior from Isaiah. And he quotes and he says, "The spirit of the Lord has been poured upon me, and by the way, this, is, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." And the people said in verse, I'm going to pick up in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on it. I want you to just. I want to sit on that for a second. You're the most handsome. What do you do when you see a handsome individual or a beautiful woman? You look. You pay attention to them. He said today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. You see, what made him so different, the reason why they were all looking at him with such a stare and with such beauty, was because the favorable, the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I think some translations say dripping from his mouth. We know people that are like that, don't we? That when they talk, good things just come from their mouth. And what I think is being said here in Psalm 45 is that God put these gracious words in His mouth and He poured those and Jesus was giving this message and I think that's why maybe it says these gracious words were coming from His mouth. He wasn't coming up with them. They were being given to Him by God, as you see in Psalm 45. And the people marveled at that. So if you go back to Psalm 45, you see the latter part of verse 2, that He's beautiful because of the things that He is saying, and He spoke the words of God. Therefore, it says, God has blessed you forever. Because you came and you spoke what I told you to speak. God, therefore, speaks well of him forever. That's what blessed means. It means to speak well of someone. Just like they were doing of Jesus in the synagogue, right? They all spoke well of him because of the gracious words that were dripping from his lips. You see what happens when Jesus does what the Father wants him to do? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. going to talk well about him the rest of his days. He's beautiful in that regard in that he does exactly what he's been sent to do. But like kings in the days especially of David, if this was written in the days of David, David was a king that was known for being a warrior. And Jesus as the Christ had a battle to fight as well. Notice what he says in verse 3. The author says, Gird your sword on your thigh. Get ready for battle. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and in your splendor and in your majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness and let your hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the people's fall under sword. What's the sword of Jesus? How many times do we see Jesus pictured in the book of Revelation riding on a horse with a sword coming out of His mouth? What do we say in Hebrews the fourth chapter of verse 12? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. But you remember Ephesians chapter 6 when we are told to stand firm in the Lord and in the power of His might. We are to put on all of these different things like the, blessed, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and all of these other things, right? You remember what the sword is? And that is one that is flat out said, the sword which is the Word of God. You see, Jesus wasn't coming to destroy His enemies with an actual sword, but with the words of His mouth is how He would destroy those enemies. His battle was with His words, and so to some, those words would be very gracious. To others, those words would hurt, and they would pierce so deep in His enemies that they would destroy Him because He is mighty and He is honorable. Just like they all looked at Him, He was strong. No one ever spoke like this man, the rulers would say when they sent people to arrest Him. He was not your typical teacher. He was strong. He was powerful. His words cut to every single person and His time. But what was He fighting for? Why was He fighting? Look at verse 4. In Your Majesty, write out victoriously, for the cause of, and here's where we get to our theme for the quarter, for the cause of truth, righteousness, and meekness. You see, when Jesus goes to battle with His words, it's not so that He would just be victorious. It is so that truth would prevail. It is so that humility would prevail. It is so that righteousness would prevail in the world. Not just so that He would be the winner. And He takes these people down with His words. And that is what He is fighting for. And don't we see that of Jesus so often? Remember what we see in John 8? I think we've referenced this several times. Where you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Remember how Michael pointed out in the verse right before that what it says? Truly you are My disciples if you remain free. In my word, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, when he gives his word, it's to set us free. It is for the sake that we would know what the truth is. What about his humility? Remember when he enters into Jerusalem in that final week of his life, as he is riding on that donkey, remember what is said of him? That he is lowly, mounted, seated on the donkey. He's coming in as the most humble king to ever come into a city with the least amount of pop ever given. That is Him. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart. That's just who He is. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't shout so that others would hear Him. That is not His demeanor. But yet He is the king and He is fighting for righteousness. He is out for this. But the king had to learn a few things himself. Remember how he said, let your right hand teach you? What did Jesus have to learn? I want you to flip to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, we learned that Jesus had to learn a lesson that all of us have to learn. Special treatment because he was the son of God. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You see, part of his battle was that he was going to have to be killed in battle. And he was going to have to learn what it meant to submit to the Father. To be obedient. And he learned that through all of his suffering. And that was long before the garden. That was long before the nails. Part of that was as a teenage boy, your parents not understanding you. How many of us get frustrated and lash out at our parents when they don't get us? Jesus had to understand what it was like not to do that. Jesus, as He is starving in those 40 days and 40 nights without food, and the devil says, Ah, here are these stones. If you're the Son of God, here are these stones. Why don't you turn them into bread? You know what He had to learn? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He had to learn that. He knew it. He spoke it. But He had to learn that and put that into practice just like you and I have to learn that. The difference is, Far too often I don't learn the lesson. I keep going right back to it and still thinking I need to live off all these physical things that I can see, feel, and touch. Jesus, not so much. He got it. Man, He had to learn it. He didn't get any shortcuts. So He had this battle. And as we said, His battle was He was out to defeat the enemy. He was going to destroy them. They were going to fall under His feet. They were going to be trampled by Him. They weren't getting up from Him. And his victory. But the reason why the Hebrew writer quotes Psalm forty five is because what else we learn about our king. Notice in verse six. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What we learn from Hebrews one and Psalm forty five is that this King, this Christ, is God. Because remember what it said there in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8? Of the Son, He said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is saying to the Son, You are God. And Your throne is forever and ever. So we learned a little bit about His kingdom. It is forever and ever, as we said. It is not going to end. Just like David was told, Your descendants shall sit on the throne forever. This is going to happen. But notice that He rules with justice. He hates iniquity. And He loves righteousness. When He is sitting judging people, He can't be bought with a bribe. He doesn't treat one one way and another another way. He treats them all equally. And He judges righteously because He's standing for truth and righteousness and humility. It's not about Him. But notice what you have at the middle of verse 7 because He was fair, because He rules in such a way, notice what it says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Because you did what you were supposed to do, God has anointed you. And who was anointed? Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. People that stood between the people and God. You were anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I was glad to pour this on you. I was thankful to be able to do this. And here you are. Because you love righteousness and hated wickedness. See, the king is completely fair and just. But now he turns to the apparel of the king. Which I think is somewhat interesting, but I think there's a reason. Look at verse 8. He said, "Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia." Say what? In Exodus chapter thirty, when the priests were told what the oil was made of, that would be the holy, the holy oil that was to be on the priests and the kings. Guess what? Three of the three of the ingredients were these three right here. What I think is being said is He's been lavished. There has been so much poured upon Him that you can smell when He comes by, this one is the one that has been chosen. This is the one that has been anointed by Him because of these beautiful fragrances, which not everyone could afford. He would stand out in such a way. And in His palace, notice what is said of His palace. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. His palace is that of great luxury, the ivory palaces. We sing that song. Out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only the great eternal love would make my Savior go. I don't want to leave that. But yet He did. It is so luxurious in such a way that He's living a joyful life with instruments and praise and all of that. And notice His court. The people that belong to Him, verse 9. Your court is made up of daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Guess who your people are? They're noble. They are of king's families. The greatest in the world want to come to you and your queen stands there in the most expensive gold. Some of the rarest and best gold was found in Ophir. And that is what his bride, that is what his queen is dressed in, in all her beauty. If you would see such a picture, right, you'd see that is the best king out there. That is the king of kings. But now the transition is to the bride. Notice what he says in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. As he now turns to the bride, he gives her her responsibility. And her responsibilities are pretty simple. First off, as we said, hear, consider, and listen. See how simple that is? And isn't that some of the things that Jesus said to the people? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like, I'm going to tell you something. You just need to pay attention to it. You just need to think about it. You need to listen to it. You listen to it. now notice what else he says to her. Forget your people and your father's house. Now we're getting tough. you got to leave. You've got to leave your family. You've got to leave your old gods. You've got to leave your old ways. You've got to put off that old man as we talked about, and you've got to put on that new man. A Little more difficult. But that's what he's saying. And if you do that, notice what he said. Verse 11, And your king will desire your beauty. You see, if you show that you're willing to do whatever it takes to be joined to the best king, he's going to want you. You will be beautiful to him. You will be exactly what he wants because he's not attracted to you because of your looks and what you can bring to the table. He's attracted to us because of what we are willing to leave to join him, just as it is in the regular marriage. Leave, father and mother, and cleave to your husband. Leave and cleave. That's exactly what we're told to do with Christ. We leave our old ways and we join Him. We cleave Him and He wants us. And when we do that, notice what comes or what else you do. You bow down because He's your Lord. You worship Him. You serve Him. You show Him respect. You submit to Him as we saw there in Ephesians 5 because I'm His. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. We bow down to Him. But it is not a place of disgrace to be the bride of Jesus. Or to have to submit to Jesus, that is not disgraceful. In fact, it is very glorious to be in that role. Notice how He says that here in verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the riches of the people. Sweetheart, the best of the best will want you to look favorable upon them. They'll come and they will bring you gifts because they want to join, they want to be a part of this. And you're the one that gets the glory of this. The best of the best. So verse 13, we now see her apparel. We now see her dress. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. You picture that bride, right? Getting prepared for her wedding today. What time do you have to show up if the wedding is at 7 o'clock? You show up at like 8.30 in the morning to put on the makeup and the dress and blah, blah, blah. And then the groomsmen have to sweat all day in their tuxedos because it's pointless. But you get a lot of work goes into all of that. She's sitting there and she's looking in front of the mirror and she says, man, I look about as good as I can look. I have the best looking dress that I have. And she is led to the king. She is taken to the king. And I think from Ephesians 5 we would see that she is led to the king by the king. He wants to present her to himself. But in this psalm and in this song, that's not the picture. The picture is she's in preparation. She has been made beautiful. And now she's walking to the king. Now she walks to the palace and her companions are following behind her. But they're not her. They're not the bride. They are with her. So verse 15, With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. They now see the ivory palaces for the first time. And what it brings on them is great joy and gladness. You chose me. You want me? I can be a part of this? I want you. And you're not going to be remembered anymore, verse 16, because of your fathers. It's no longer about who you came from. You're going to be remembered now because of your sons. Your family will be the one that is known. And they will be princes in all your, your children. Your sons will rule everywhere. Don't we want that? You'll be known. And then here it is, verse 17. There is finally a therefore. I will cause, I think this is God saying, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Everybody will know the church. Everybody will know Christians. Therefore, remember we have a therefore now for our bride. Nations will praise you forever and ever. You see, when we're associated with the King, we receive glory forever and ever. And that is what Peter writes to his audience in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory, in Christ Jesus, will Himself perfect, perform, conform, strengthen, and establish. See, what we have is God saying, I'll marry you, if you're willing to join. What a beautiful, beautiful picture it is that God would won us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture it is that our King would give up so much for us. Let's be Holy and blameless, like Ephesians 5 says to be as His church. If you're ready to be joined to Christ, why don't you come this morning as we stand up and as we sing.